Hello, hello. As always, I am your host, Jeff Gardner, and this is Lives of Adventure. In this episode, I'm talking with Hazel Finley. Hazel is a professional rock climber and a performance coach who specializes in the more psychological aspects of performance. And if you know anything about Hazel's climbing achievements, this does not come as a surprise at all. Hazel has made a name for herself climbing not only hard, but also mentally challenging routes. In fact, I first became aware of Hazel after seeing her short film as part of the Real Rock Traveling Film Festival. The film documents her ascent of a route called Once Upon a Time in the Southwest, graded E9. And for those who aren't familiar with the British climbing grades, E9 roughly equates to hard run-out 513 that offers only very difficult-to-place protection. You should watch the video on YouTube. It's absolutely guaranteed to make you feel a little sick to your stomach. Hazel and I talk about how she got into climbing, what climbing and traveling mean to her, and we spend a good amount of time actually talking about how she managed to become a pro climber and continue ticking hard routes, all while struggling with a serious shoulder injury. If it's not already obvious, and while you'd be hard-pressed to get her to admit it, Hazel has mental toughness in spades. We also spend some time talking about her approach to coaching, and broadly what she's hoping to teach and share with the world. I had a great time chatting with Hazel, and I'm so grateful she took the time out over the holidays for the call. I'm sure you're going to enjoy this one. So, as Tim Ferriss says, without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Hazel Finley. Hey, Hazel, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and we're kind of squeezed in here between Christmas and New Year's, so it's a uh, it's going to be a bit of a quicker episode than maybe normal, but uh, I'm sure we'll have plenty to talk about. Yeah, looking forward to it. Cool. So, uh, so for those people who don't know, and uh, you know, I'll go through this uh, in the intro a lot more. But um, for those people that don't know, Hazel is a very well-known professional climber. Um, kind of came onto the scene uh, a bunch of years ago now, actually, uh, by doing a lot of pretty, uh, pretty heady, pretty hardcore, uh, fairly scary routes. Um, and coming out of England, that's kind of no surprise. Um, but Hazel, I guess I'd love to start by just asking you a little bit more about how you got into climbing and and where that drive for climbing and that lifestyle came from uh well I definitely got into climbing through my dad he was a climber he he had climbed since he was like 20 years old or something um and was was really into it quite a kind of a big figure on the UK climbing scene and um he was also a mountain guide in the Himalayas and so you know like climbing and more generally like having adventures and being outside was something that was just normal for us from a really young age um and then I also did the competitions when I was young I started competing when I was seven I probably stopped competing when I was about 16 due to kind of just being more interested in outdoor climbing um that's and a pretty common, I, think, I guess like the, the competition thing is pretty common in, the, in that sort of exact pattern. Somebody starts in the gym, um, you know, gets really into it, really enjoys it for a while and then slowly starts to go, actually, there's this other side that uh, becomes a lot more interesting to them. Do you feel like there was any specific thing that kind of tipped that balance or was it just 
kind of going back to what you started at with climbing, which was, uh, which was outside. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, I think, I think my history is slightly different to some people in the sense that like outdoor climbing was always there for me. It wasn't like I started outside and then did the comp thing and then like went back to my roots. It was like outdoor climbing was always something I did with my dad. As soon as I became old enough to climb with other people, I also climbed outside with other people. Um, so it's slightly different. I think the main reason I did the comps was because when I was a kid, that was a way that I could meet people my own age. And I think when you're a kid, it's way more fun doing anything with people your own age. True. And so I was like on the British climbing team and we used to like go around and do all the international competitions and it was super fun. Amazing. But then as soon as I got a, a, that community outside, then I didn't need to, uh, I didn't need that part of the comps anymore. Right. Okay. Yeah, that makes total sense. Um, and so, you know, as a kid, uh, you know, when you were very first getting into climbing, kind of six, seven, eight, nine, um, what were the, what are kind of the standout memories of that period for you? Um, I guess, you know, I remember a few of my first trad leads. I remember getting really scared on various routes. Um, Tell, tell me a little bit more about that, I suppose. Like, yeah, I'd love to know, kind of like, one, how old were you when you did your first trad lead? You know, I don't even really know. I mean, maybe like nine or something. Young enough um, that you can't remember the exact period. <laughs> That's pretty impressive. I, I do remember that my brother belayed me and my dad climbed, so soloed up alongside me in his flip-flops. Nice. checking whether the gear I placed was good. So it was obviously a really easy route. Yeah. You know, that my yeah. dad, well, you would hope, you would it. hope either that or your dad is yeah. very, very strong. Yeah. Maybe a combination. Yeah. Right, right. That's really cool. And then, you know, as you, you kind of progress through, you know, finding friends and climbing and, and starting to do, you know, more broadly, I guess, traveling and climbing. Um, actually, let me back up there. you, so kind of roughly from, you know, getting going with the British climbing team and starting to travel for comps and things, you've really been living on the road more or less full time. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, well, so I, I kind of, I, I only traveled and competed with the competitions, uh, as a kid, like whilst I was still at school, I never really did that as an adult. And then, yeah, I left school when I was 18 and I went on a gap year, which is something that British people do when they leave school before they go to university. Mm -hmm. And then I was at university for three years, but I traveled in every holiday I had. I would travel usually abroad. And then as soon as I finished university, I signed a deal with the North Face. And I've, yeah, I've been a professional climber since then, traveling. Yeah, so I haven't really been still since I was at school, I'd say. Yeah. That's incredible. Um, so, you know, getting started so young in something and, and kind of continuing on for, you know, the period of time that you've been climbing now, like that's, uh, you know, multiple decades. Do you find it kind of hard to keep the, the excitement for it going? Or is it just so built into you now that you kind of can't imagine life without it? Yeah, I, d I definitely can't imagine life without climbing. And, you know, what? I've had so many injuries that I've had so much enforced rest from climbing that mm -hmm. uh, I think that's that's kind of helped psych. But 
also, you know, I do so many different types of climbing that I never like it, I, I do get bored and I do lose my motivation sometimes, but then I just swap, swap styles of climbing. Um, and then, so I, I never really, I never like, oh, I just want to take a month off climbing. I like, I like, I've never thought that in my whole life. I don't think. That's mental. <laughs> I mean, like, I, I guess I asked the question because I know a lot of people who are, uh, they're sort of bimodal. They're either like on with something or completely off with it. And they tend to kind of jump between a lot of different sports. And so, you know, like I'm thinking of a friend of mine here who he's really into climbing and then he's completely done with climbing and he's really into skiing and then he's totally done with skiing and he's like really into surfing. And you're like, how can you do all these different things? Like this is, you know, it's a little crazy, but, um, and then there's other people, uh, yourself, it sounds like among them. Um, uh, you know, I've got a lot of friends that are really into climbing that, uh, are like this as well, that the psych just never seems to go away. Uh, so that's, it's really cool. Yeah. It's like, you know, I kind of just consider bouldering and alpine climbing just they're so different it's almost like doing a different sport but you know I'm experienced in both of them so it's more fun than doing something different although I am going surfing soon and I was actually learning I have learned to paraglide and I'm trying to learn how to ski so it's not like I'm totally anti other sports anti other sports you're just really into climbing (laughs) yeah I'm pretty into climbing Fair, fair enough. Um, so you did mention there that, uh, you have kind of fought uh, some injuries and I know, um, you know, the major one that you read about, uh, read about a lot is, uh, your shoulder injury that, uh, drug on for many years and then you got surgery and, um, it took you close on two years to really get back from that. Is that right? Yeah. And actually, you know, I can't even remember the year. I think it might have been like, 2009 when I first did the surgery no was it 2009 sorry the uh the injury mm-hmm. maybe 2010 and and you know it only really sorted itself out in 2017 so so you were just living and climbing full-time uh professionally with an injury and like with pain the whole time uh yeah I mean not the whole time like so the first the sort of three years before the surgery I could I could manage it up until the last year before the surgery. So it's sort of like this on, on and off thing. Like maybe I'd do a climbing trip and have pain and like not really be able to climb very hard. And then it, the pain would kind of go away and I could kind of manage it with physio and, right. and, and that kind of thing. But then the year before the surgery, I was just like searching for a year. Like what's wrong with my shoulder? What's wrong with my shoulder? All these things. Um, in that way, was so, it, so yeah. was it a bit of like a relief when somebody was finally like, this is what's wrong with it and we have to just go in there and, and fix it surgically? It was actually, yeah. Yeah. I didn't want to have the operation, but it was so frustrating not knowing that was kind of like the worst thing. Right. So once you had the surgery, um, you know, I imagine there was, uh, I mean, I've read about it, but I also imagine there was this long kind of down period where, you know, you are trying very hard to do the right thing for your shoulder and let it heal properly and, you know, start to come back slowly so that you don't re-injure it. Um, what, like, I guess just for someone who is a professional climber for, you know, who, you know, really lives the lifestyle that enforced rest, you know, I think I heard in a video you referred to, you know, your bedroom as your prison cell at one point, uh, during that period. Um, what was that like? I mean, what was that? Did that feel like a prison sentence that you were sort of working your way out of, or was it a space to sort of explore some of those other things like paragliding? Yeah. I mean, the, the different phases of the 
recovery post-operation kind of had their different challenges. Like directly after the operation, you know, I I was basically kind of bed bound and, you know, just the only thing you can do for exercise is exercise, bike and walking. Um, And that was really hard for me and, and made me realize like how much joy I get from having adventures outside um and then but then you know it was so funny like as soon as I could lift a bag I uh, went to India because <laughs> I just like I'd been like three weeks in Sheffield or something and right or in a city in mostly in my bedroom and you're, you're already that was like yeah it, I'm terrible yeah I just get itchy feet and I was like I'm gonna do some solo adventure and I like went to India and I did a meditation course and then like did a like a six-day trek and climbed a mountain and went on a motorbike adventure you know (laughs) that's that strangely sounds a lot like my India trip okay yeah I think that's a lot of people's India's experience right right. yeah and um I should have been I should have still been in Sheffield like like seeing a physio and doing specific shoulder exercises and like getting daily massages and all those things that you're supposed to do you know and I just wasn't doing any of them and then I got home and I still didn't want to stay in Sheffield and I just got in my camper van and went to Chamonix and learned how to paraglide and you know I just I, I wasn't the best at my recovery which is probably what contributed to it taking so long Right. Yeah. This is, um, also a very common story with, uh, athletes, especially is just that, uh, they just can't sit still after something like that and they try to push it too quickly too, uh, you know, too soon. And, um, I mean, my wife is the exact same. She, uh, blew out her knee in Chamonix actually skiing, uh, when she was first learning and ended up getting knee surgery. She's even a physio, so she should know better. Um, but ended up doing exactly the same thing, like trying to get back into running a little early, too early and trying to kind of push it a little too much too soon. And it took ages and ages for her knee to like properly heal. Oh man. Yeah. Same thing. So Um, so you, you know, you come out of the shoulder surgery, you come out of this kind of slow, long recovery period. And, um, I actually, I saw a video recently and it was, uh, it was a really well-made video. I felt at least, um, it was five, 10 minutes and it was talking about, um, your ascent of mind control, uh, which was kind of the hardest route, uh, that I think it was kind of the, the same level as the top grade that you would have climbed previous to the shoulder surgery. And I think the way that the video sort of portrayed it was, it was, it was almost you kind of you know, coming back to being yourself almost. Um, I know that was quite a while ago now, but, um, you know, how did, how did that experience feel in terms of, you know, coming off of the injury? Did it feel kind of the way that it was portrayed in the sense that you were kind of becoming yourself again, or, you know, maybe they just added that in there for flourish? Um, it did feel like that. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, it, it definitely was the, like the mark of me being able to climb free again, I suppose. Like, you know, for so many years, there'd always been this like little asterisk against my climbing experience, which was, oh, did I just make my shoulder worse? Or, oh, is my shoulder going to be hurting tomorrow? Or, oh, should I tone it down a bit? Or, or should I be doing this style of climbing? Or these 
these exercises or you know there was always just like this mental asterisk on my climbing and I think I knew that if I could do that route because also the crux move is this like crazy shouldery move like you couldn't you couldn't have a worse move for your right shoulder and I was I just knew that if I could do that route then then that was it like my shoulder was recovered and and that was the case you know like I did that route and and after that I've I've had no problems with that shoulder amazing um very good well congratulations on the shoulder um I do feel compelled to ask you about how your finger is because I saw on Instagram there recently (laughs) that you hurt your finger yeah uh, yeah it's such a pain I just I, I'm just one of those climbers that just seems to be injured all the time because um, I had a bit of a finger injury the whole summer too um, and uh, yeah the, this finger injury is way worse like I can't even like hang on a pull-up bar without it hurting like it's oh, it's no. pretty bad yeah um, so yeah yeah I guess just being patient again <laughs> you're gonna you're getting there's some sort of life lesson in here that somebody's going i think hazel really needs to learn a little more patience so we're gonna really whack her over the head with it a few hundred thousand times yeah i don't know what it is that i'm missing you know like what the universe wants to uh to tell me because i I've really felt like i learned it all you know but right. um right but there you go but there you go um the well, way it is yeah i hope the finger uh heals quicker than the shoulder did for sure um so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I guess um, one of the things, and, and maybe this is a good transition into this, uh, one of the things you're really well known for in the climbing circles is um, both your ability to climb pretty scary routes, uh, you know, routes where there is actually uh, real legitimate risk and danger, um, and and also your ability to help teach other people how to do that better when it comes to the mental side of climbing. Um, and I know, you know, you've talked about this with a lot of other people and in several podcasts and written about it extensively, you know, on the Black Diamond website, on your own website. So we won't go super into it, but I did want to kind of talk a little bit about, um, you know, both the mental side of things and the mental training aspects, but also kind of your interest in flow and, you know, kind of uh, flow for peak performance and that sort of thing. And then kind of look at some parallels between uh a few other things in your life that seem to kind of, uh, you know, line up pretty nicely in those areas. So I suppose to start, uh, where, you know, how did you, I guess maybe is it just because you grew up in England and you ended up climbing on sea cliffs that you had to develop a good head for climbing? I guess so. But you know, like, I don't even know if I do have a particularly good head compared to everyone else. You know, I just, I think I'm pretty normal, actually. I just, I just think that I think about it more. And I probably work on it more, but I'm definitely not like super bold or anything. I've also just climbed a really long time and, um, I, I gravitate, I suppose this might be it is I kind of gravitate towards the psychological challenge of climbing versus avoid it. So like, even though I might find it hard, you know, I'm not going to like not do a style of climbing because I think it's scary. For example, like I'll just slowly build up my experience in that style of climbing um so that i can i can make it less scary right so um, i mean you're, you're effectively yeah, practicing or training your mind just the way you would train your you know fingers and arms and muscles and things exactly yeah Okay. Interesting. Um, and you know, I know, uh, you have spent a lot of time with Arno, uh, Ilgner, who, uh, I kind of 
my kind of initial climbing was all done in Virginia and North Carolina. So his name came up pretty early in my kind of climbing career, as it were. Um, and I think, you know, I've climbed a lot of the areas that Arno is well known for and have been terrified at many, many of them. Um, so I guess I'd love to know a little bit more about, um, you know, what do you feel like your style of coaching is in that area? Like if you got somebody who was saying, you know, look, I've never really climbed trad. I'm, I'm pretty terrified of it. Or maybe similarly, if you got somebody who had climbed lots of trad and was still having trouble kind of getting over, um, you know, climbing far above their gear, uh, how do you kind of approach those situations? How would I approach someone who, who came, someone like that who came to me for help? Yeah, exactly. So if you were coaching, because I know you do a lot of coaching with people um, on the mental aspects of climbing and, and that sort of thing. And I guess I'm just wondering, you know, do you have kind of a set methodology in your head or do you really just approach each person and say, okay, what's the first little step we can take and how do we start to move them along the path? Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's a tricky question just because is there's there's you know I have so much coaching content you know mm -hmm. um well I I, I kind of like to think about it in 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 two different ways this idea of mental training is is you've got your mindset which is like the general outlook that you have towards your climbing so that might include something like motivation or um um you know, like fear of failure or goal setting or, you know, this, mm -hmm. this kind of thing, like your general outlook, like how you think about climbing before you go to bed or how you, how are you going to choose which crag to go to or which route to do that on a given day. And then you have mental training in the sense of, um, what do you do in the moment when you're distracted when you're climbing? So like, something that can be incredibly distracting for many climbers is fear of falling or fear of failure. And you, you can build a capacity to, to deal with that as a distraction whilst climbing. Um, so, you know, the approach can, can take either of those depending on the person. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and, um, and, and yeah, like sometimes, you know, like I just show people how to do fall practice and they go away and they do it and their climbing improves, their climbing improves. Or, you know, I've worked with people over years and years because there's some deep ingrained stuff, which is really limiting them um, with their climbing. Interesting. And so in those cases, do you find it, um, you know, do you find yourself almost in the position of a therapist where you're, you're sort of helping them work through these deeply ingrained issues or, or thought patterns and, and try to break them out of those patterns? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I end up talking about so much interesting stuff on, because uh, I do, um, you know, so I'll do kind of workshops and one-to-one on coaching with people face to face but then I also do conversational coaching which is just chatting on Skype like me and you are now yep. and um you know the conversations I end up having are, are so funny because they end up just being so far removed from actual climbing because you know that's what's cool about climbing is it that it's a it's a holistic endeavor in so many ways because it requires all of you you know it doesn't just require you to have strong fingers and um, strong core you know you you need to be thinking the right things at the right time and um, 
if you're not thinking the right things at the right time, then maybe that's the case in other areas of your life as well. Um, so it's funny, like my, um, my training to become a coach, I didn't go to any kind of climbing, uh, workshop or training to become a climbing coach and didn't do any of that. Like I, I went and did courses in mindfulness and I did a coaching qualification, like a life coaching qualification, which basically taught me how to speak to people how to ask the right questions so that you can kind of invoke change um, from the person and not just like give them advice essentially. Um, And I think that's helped massively because, you know, all these other areas, all these other different professions, therapy wise you know are are good at this stuff whereas climbers are are good at climbing right right it goes so goes the theory at least (laughs) very interesting so i suppose you know in and through the coaching and you mentioned it just there that you did a lot of mindfulness courses and you you did a meditation retreat when you were in india do you feel like a lot of the you know a lot of what so many climbers kind of um get stuck on is that that sort of attachment um to whether it's sort of the outcomes of you know performance you know they ticked the route they did the thing they got the you know acclaim from whoever um do you feel like that's what's holding most people back you know in those uh climbing coaching conversations is is it that more than it is the you know the physical performance aspects of it and the physical training yeah, I think um, I, I I see a lot the situation where someone is performing way below what they're physically capable of. You know, I see that so much, and, and as soon as you start to notice it, you you see it in everyone around you, and you go to the crag, and if you know if people are saying take, then how could they possibly be performing at their limit? Um, and so, yeah, there's a few things. I think the two most common things that limit people that limit people are fear of failure and fear of falling. I think they're the two most common. And when you say fear of failure, do you just mean fear of not finishing the route, uh, or like fear of failing in front of other people, or that sort of thing? Yeah, a lot of fear of failure reduces back down to other people's perception of you. Um. Yeah, I mean, we're pretty social creatures. And as soon as you enter a sport like climbing, then, you know, your status, I guess, how you consider yourselves in comparison to other people is di- directly relatable to uh, to how hard you can climb. Yeah, to a number, uh, number system. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty uh, unfortunate. Yeah. And also, like, so socially, and I guess to our reptile brain, like, it's such an easy thing to do. We're like, oh, yes, easily. Okay, I can rank myself in the pack of animals here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, you know, climbing is just a, it's a really difficult sport for that, because it's so goal, goal and outcome orientated. You know, if you take a sport like surfing, unless you're doing competitions or whatever, you, you're really just comparing yourself to yourself. It's, it's really hard to make direct comparisons like that, although I'm sure it still happens. But because we have this grade system and because success and failure are so well defined by whether you clip the chains or not, you know, it's so black and white, it, we have this tendency to kind of devalue all of our, our efforts unless 
they result in ascend essentially so you know I, I'm, I coach a lot of people who you know they might have progressed massively in these different areas but because they can't say that they've sent a certain grade um you know in their eyes they're failing right. and it's it's just such a shame because it, it means that people don't put energy into certain processes within their climbing they only put energy into the outcomes yeah i heard you um mention in another interview that uh there that a lot of the flow training as well and for people that don't know they can go look it up we won't even mention the unpronounceable uh polish or whatever wherever he's from name um there you go. You're good at it. <laughs> You've had a lot of practice, <laughs> apparently. Um, so any, in any case, uh, so flow theory is, um, and there's a very concise definition for it. Do you have that memorized as well? Um, I don't actually, but oh, I could bummer. give it a go if you want. Or have you got it written down? I don't have it written down. I should have had, I've got a bunch of other stuff written down, but not that. So give it a go and see how, how we make it. And if not, I'll just throw it in the, in the show notes. Okay. Um, well, I guess it's, you know, it's, uh, it's being fully absorbed in the moment, but how it different differs from mindfulness is there's this component of challenge. So you're kind of perfectly challenged. Everything kind of feels automatic. Um, you kind of lose a sense of time. Um, you're enjoying it, but you don't really know you're enjoying it until you come out of the flow experience. I mean, flow experience is usually categorized by when you come out of it, you you have this like giant high. Um, yeah, that's yeah. probably enough. That's that's a perfect <laughs> that's a perfect uh, description of it. And I think it's um, one of the things that really struck me about uh, flow was, uh, you know, you were saying that you know, flow is not this thing that is sort of like, you can't attain it by going after it. Like it's not something you can just, uh, brute force your way into. Um, you have to look for it and there's ways you can, you know, increase the chances that you'll end up in a flow state on a, on a given route or on a, you know, given climb. But, um, the best way kind of to, to think about it is, you know, you're sort of there to try to, go through the process and try and find flow as a goal as it, like if there was an outcome, that's the outcome. Um, you know, using that process to look for that, uh, that kind of elusive flow state rather than I've got to get up there and clip the chains. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I mean, I guess one way of looking at it is that just being present before you start climbing or prior to trying prior to when you might enter flow state is important and if you are thinking about having done the route or that you really want to do the route or you're too busy kind of imagining having having already done the route then you're not present um so so yeah it's like it's, it's one of these really paradoxical things where you increase the likelihood of doing that thing if you think less about that thing. <laughs> very, very interesting. Um, there's a lot of, I also uh, did a, a 10 day Vipassana, Vipassana course a couple of years back and um, oh, yeah, cool. I just find so many parallels between meditation and, and really any sport. Uh, like I think most sports benefit hugely from um you know, mental training, but also just kind of less of a focus on outcomes and more of a focus on process. Uh, and so I've always found that kind of fascinating that 
it has taken so long for so many sports and also in the world of business, it's become a really big thing now. But, um, you know, it's just, I've always found it fascinating that it took so long for those kind of parallels to, to come together and go, Oh yeah. For somebody to kind of draw those lines together. Yeah. I mean, it's taken people so long to even just accept meditation as like a worthy thing that we probably all should be doing. Right. 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 So, Absolutely. um, yeah, it's just, yeah, I, I think it got hijacked by, um, like faux spirituality, you know, like, um, just, you know, all the fluff that yes. sometimes get attacked gets attached to it it's almost like you know dogma plus the practice and right. I think that with people are finally realizing that actually just doing the practice in a certain way without all the other stuff attached to it is really beneficial for mental health eventually right, right. it's totally fine without the dogma and it still works just as well yeah Cool. So um, let's transition a little bit away from the mental and uh, coaching stuff. I'll stop grilling you about your uh, work uh, other than your work in the vertical. Um, and I'd love to just know, you know, we touched on it a little bit. You know, you got climbing, uh, got into climbing very early in life. Um, you were competitive quite early. Uh, and then you effectively transitioned into becoming a professional. And uh, your life has been more or less on the road for over 10 or 15 years now. Um, what is, uh, like we've talked about how you maintain kind of the psych there, but do you ever feel like you're missing out or that there, you know, there's some balance missing in how, how that lifestyle is sort of built and how it has to function? Do I think there's something missing in my lifestyle? Yeah. Just like, is there, I guess what I'm getting at it, like, do you feel like it's unbalanced, um, you know, in the sense that you're pretty much always on the road, mm -hmm. um, you know, I guess somebody yeah. could easily turn around and say the same thing about somebody that lived in the same house for, or the same town for, you know, all 30 or 40 or 50 or 80 years of their life, um, that that's sort of unbalanced in the opposite direction. Um, but I, I feel like there's always kind of a general pushback to the kind of more nomadic lifestyles of, you know, people that are out living in their vans and, and climbing all the time. And I say that as somebody who spent, you know, several summers in the valley climbing and living out of the back of a van. So, you know, I'm, I'm very sympathetic to it, but I'm, I suppose I'd love your take. And like, do you ever kind of feel like I'd actually like to stay put in some single place for a little while? Yeah. Yeah. It's a good question. I, I definitely travel too much and, uh, it definitely affects me. Um, you know, every year I say, okay, I'm going to spend like these three months in this place. You know, I've been, I've been trying to grow roots in Chamonix for probably three years now. And, um, it's just quite laughable really, you know, like I'll be back for a month in the summer and, and that will be the, the longest amount of time I'll be there for before I leave for a bit. And then I might come back for a bit, but then like the entire winter from kind of, so like this year from October through to June, I will have spent one week in Chamonix and that's supposed to be my home. Right. right. So, um, it's, uh, it's pretty full on. I spend a lot of my life packing and unpacking. Um, and I think that's a side of professional climbing that people, uh, they, they kind of, uh, they like to, they think it, it. it yeah. would be such a wonderful thing. Yeah. They glamorize it. Yeah. And when in, in reality, it's actually kind of hard work, but also, you know, I could stay in one place a little bit more. Obviously, I do have some obligations. 
um, and I do need to travel for work to some extent, but I could also change a few things in my life and stay put a bit more. So it's definitely not like, you know, it's partly my own fault. Right. Um, I mean, there's trade-offs in everything, aren't there? You know, yeah. Like you, you've got obligations on the exactly, one side. Yeah. You could totally change your life up and do things differently. And, and those would all have different trade-offs and, and, you know, ramifications. Yeah. And, you know, there's times where um, I've, I've got quite stressed with it and I've gone, right, you know, I'm, I'm cancelling this, I'm cancelling that, I'm staying here for a while. And then and it drives my boyfriend mad because that's all I'll be talking about is how I want to stay in one place. And then literally a month later, I'll do some cool trip. And then all I want to do is travel. And like, so like this coming year, because like when I made a bunch of decisions about this coming year, um, I was really psyched on traveling and going to like new places. I have so many random trips in the pipeline this year. And like my year is just filling up and filling up. And it's just scary because at some point I'll be like, oh, no, I shouldn't have planned all these trips. And do you kind of think that, I mean, in some sense, do you feel like you're sort of in a window right now where you're like, I'm, you know, I'm climbing very well. I've got the opportunity to do all these amazing things and these amazing trips. And, you know, it's sort of... uh you know, make hay while the sun shines sort of situation uh, that you're kind of going, you know, sometime in the future, I'll be able to change and go to the, you know, the, I guess the less travel lifestyle, but, um, it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a one-way door in a sense, you know, like unless you're in the position where you do have the ability to go on all these trips and, and plan all these, uh, amazing, you know, climbing, uh, objectives and that sort of thing. I don't know exactly what the question is here, but I guess what I'm getting at is like, is, do you feel like you are making a kind of temporal trade-off of, okay, I'm doing this now because I can, and I wouldn't be able to do it later, potentially? Yeah, yeah. I guess, you know, if if, if one day I want to have a family, then maybe, you know, I'm not going to um, be able to do that, that much travel. But then, you know, I, I bumped into a bunch of my friends uh, this year in the Valley in Bishop who are families and they're just living out of vans in Bishop. So, you know, who knows whether it ever has to end, right? <laughs> I don't right. know. <laughs> yeah, totally true. I mean, you see, like, I think Tommy Caldwell's like that, um, Sonny Trotter's like that. Yeah. Like, they all have uh, this quite, yeah. you know, road-driven uh, lifestyle, which is, I think, fascinating. I think it's really interesting. And I think it's, um, I think it's commendable that people go and try to find the lifestyle that works for them, right? And it, they aren't just going, okay, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm just going to accept what everybody tells me is the norm or the right thing to do. Uh, and I'm going to go and push it in the direction that I want to push it in. And, and if I like it, great. And if not, I can always retreat back a little bit. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that's kind of how I've always lived my life. I've never, and I've got that from my dad, you know, there is this norm uh, you know of how we are supposed to live our lives and 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 that's really multifaceted you know it's like how how we're supposed to have a career how we're supposed to have our relationships how we're supposed to live in in terms of geography you know there's, there's all this stuff and um you just have to if that doesn't suit you you know I mean it suits a lot of people but if it doesn't suit you then you really have to be able to take some risk, risks to change that um, because otherwise you will you will just be unhappy with it. Right, right. 
So I want to be a little conscious of time. I know we've only got a little while left. Um, there's kind of several questions I try to remember to ask most of my guests, uh, and I have remembered this time. So I will I will send you a couple of these questions right now, and um, we'll see how many we get through before we run out of time. So if you had to um, define adventure, uh, just what is an adventure? Or what is what does an adventure mean to you? Um, how would you define what is adventure? I think, you know, because adventure is so relative, um, you know, for one person, adventure is, is getting a new job. And for another person, it's climbing Everest. And for another person, it's deep sea diving, you know, whatever it is. But I think the thing that defines it is that you, you've left your own personal comfort zone. Um, and you're, you're amongst numerous unknowns, I suppose, is how I would, would define it. Great definition. Um, and you know, when you think about adventure and you think about, uh, you know, the lifestyle you've built and the, you know, your, your professional climber status and, and obligations and all the rest, what, you know, why is adventure important to you? And you like kind of sit down and, and maybe actually when you forget about all that other stuff and you just think, you know, why is it that I feel compelled to, to live life like this? I think I'm someone who I'm really curious and I want to be learning stuff in whatever I do and I think that if I'm not learning something new if I'm if I'm not making new discoveries either about myself or about the world then it's not really that worthwhile an endeavor so for me having adventures are just fun ways to learn <laughs> fun ways to learn. I like that. Did that answer your question? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Definitely. Uh, there is no right answer, as they all say. Um, so I guess, you know, in in kind of a maybe a slightly parallel track or maybe a, an opposing track, you know, if there was one thing, you know, if you could somehow place yourself out towards the end of your life, whenever that is, uh, hopefully very, very, very far out. Um, yeah, always. Uh, you know, what would be the one thing you would sort of like to be uh, remembered by or about? Um, would it be, you know, and I'm maybe sort of loading the question here, but um, would it be any specific kind of climbing uh, achievement or climbing related thing? Or is it something completely different? I don't know. I actually like don't care at all how I'm remembered, really. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> tell me more. Like, uh, you know, I think like the you know whoever my family is when I die I want them to I want them to remember me fondly like you know the people who actually know me as a person I want them to remember me fondly and and uh you know not think ill of me like that that would be important to me but in terms of like fame or like legacy like that stuff just doesn't interest me at all So if you get to the end and you know you feel like you have great relationships with your family and you feel like you've lived a full life full of, you know, adventures big and small and you've learned tons along the way, that'll be enough. Yeah, I guess, you know, one thing maybe I could add to that would be like, um, it would be cool to have like taught someone something, you know, like, because I, I do have pretty unusual life and I get to experience a lot of cool stuff that other people don't get to experience. And maybe I have learned some something useful from that. So 
I suppose it would be nice to have shared that as much as I could have. Well, it sounds like you are very much already on the way to sharing plenty of that knowledge. Thanks. Um, and I think I will just, uh, it sounds like a, as good a place as any to call it. Um, I think we've had a great conversation and I've totally learned a lot from you. So thank you for the time. And uh, I hope your trip well, in you. the coming thank days goes well and all the, all the travel in 2019 goes well as well. Thanks a lot. It's been fun chatting to you. Yeah, you too. See you, Hazel. Bye. And that's it for this episode. If you enjoyed what you heard, please subscribe. And if you're willing to wade through the mess that is iTunes, I would be eternally grateful for any reviews that showed up on the podcast there. That always helps us find more listeners. Uh, you can also check us out on Instagram. I've been posting a ton of old photos there, and it's been really great fun to look through the old archives and uh, pull stuff out. Uh, hopefully you'll enjoy those as well. So until next time, I'm Jeff Gardner, and I'm signing off Lives of Adventure. Thank you.